Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be reading Revelation 3, 1 through 6. That's on page 596 in the Blue Bibles in the back of your chair. And if you don't have a Bible and you need one, please feel free to take one. They're our gift to you. That is Revelation 3, 1 through 6, page 596. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Danae. Let's pray. Lord, each of these letters have ended with an, with a call to those who have ears to hear, that they would hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so, God, we pray for ourselves in our dullness, in our hardness of heart, in our uh, resistance at times to your truth. Lord, we pray that you would, by an act of your Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear this morning, that we we would be attuned to your message and that we would um, open our hearts to be changed by your word, transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So we ask you for that this morning, Lord. We ask that you would just have authority over us, have authority over our minds, have authority over our souls, over our spirits. And God, just lead us into your truth and your righteousness. God, I pray for myself that you would just set a watchman on my, on my, uh, my tongue, Lord, that there would be no uh, mishandling of your word, no uh, straying from the intent of your word, but that I would deliver this message as you delivered it so many years ago. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for your empowering to both hear and to speak. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Um, so we are continuing in our uh, series on the letters to the churches. We've broken into Revelation chapter 3 today where we will find the last three messages to the churches. And uh, we begin today with Sardis. And to Sardis, um, again, a, a city that is is no longer in the form it was then. It's located in uh, what is modern-day Turkey. And to this church in this city, Jesus' message comes with this introduction, that these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, this is just the kind of uh, of mysterious language that makes people sometimes, even the best of believers, sometimes resistant to the book of Revelation. In this case, however, 
we've already encountered this idea of the seven stars. If you'll recall, uh, back to our very first message in this series, Jesus had stated this in Revelation 1.20. He said, As for the mystery of the seven stars, there it is again, that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven Churches. Now, you may recall, as we talked about then, that the word angel can simply mean messenger. That is literally the interpretation or the translation of the word angel. Um, that uh, it can mean messenger. So this obviously can refer to angelic beings who are oftentimes in scriptures. They're messengers of words from God. Or it can actually refer to earthly messengers to each of the churches, meaning the pastors and the elders being in view here as the messengers of God's word to that particular church. But the ESV study Bible sheds even more light on this passage, on this word angels. Um, And it states that angels could also mean the personification of each church's identity. And so when we see that or when we consider that possibility, Jesus addresses his encouragement or his rebuke to each church's angel, their identity, what the essential makeup of that church is. If you'll recall, the identity of Ephesus was that they had service that was devoid of love as its motivation. Smyrna had an identity of faithfulness under trial. Pergamum was the whole of the home of both faithful martyrs like Antipas and as well as being a compromising community. Thyatira, which we talked about last week, had great love, great faith, great service, and great patient endurance, but they also tolerated false teachers. Now these traits personified each church. That was what the church was like. And this is how they were known to Christ, these different churches. It didn't matter what the culture around them felt about them or said about them. It didn't matter what they thought about themselves. The piercing gaze of Jesus Christ that we talked about last week discovered the truth about each and every one of these churches. It was ever before him. There was nothing that could be hidden. And he reminded Sardis that he holds, that he has control and possession of the angel of their church. And what that means is that the church's character can't be hidden by hypocrites who try to polish the image of the church. And it can't be hidden by faithful sufferers who are feeling forgotten in the midst of trials. Um, Jesus really and intimately knows his church. And you should be very glad about that fact. We're also told that Christ in this message has the seven spirits of God. And I remember being a, a, a pretty new Christian way back in the late 80s. And I remember thinking, what on earth is that talking about? Seven? I knew there was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I was like, what is this seven spirits thing that, that we're seeing before God? Well, we've seen already that seven in the book of Revelation, and particularly in, throughout the Bible, is a number of perfection. There were seven days of creation, or six days of creation, and a day of rest on the seventh day, and, and creation was complete. And so seven represents perfection or completeness in the Bible. 
Bible. And Revelation relies heavily on this number seven to illustrate perfection or completeness. And so the seven spirits of God is a cryptic way, kind of a, a, a mysterious way of uh, of expressing that, that, you know, there is one Holy Spirit to whom belongs absolute perfection. That it's not seven individual spirits, it's one spirit, but this number seven is used to talk about his absolute perfection. This happens again and again in Revelation. Later in Revelation, the Holy Spirit will be seen as seven torches of fire to show that his, he, he has power to illuminate and to expose and to give testimony to the truth. Later on, uh, we'll see that he is seen as the seven eyes on the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. And this bears witness to his omnipotence omnipresence, that the, the fact that he is everywhere, nothing's hidden from him, there's eyes all around, that it also speaks to his omniscience, that he sees everything, a theme we keep coming back to in this series. And by, this is what I want you to get, I said all of that to say this, it is by these qualities of the spirit that the lamb reigns everywhere and forever. That is how Jesus reigns, is through the agency of the Holy Spirit. As the one who has the seven spirits of God, or the one Holy Spirit, Jesus administers and is present with the entire church at once. It is through the power and through the presence of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ is right here, right now among us. And concerning his perfect Holy Spirit, John the Baptist had said, if you'll recall back in, in the, in the uh, Gospels, John the Baptist had said that it was Christ who would baptize, not with water as he did, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And therefore the Holy Spirit is the active agent of Christ present reigning on the earth, which is a very significant theme when you're trying to untangle the knots of the book of Revelation. John 3.34, John the Baptist again, says this about Jesus Christ. He says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Though believers would one day share in the Spirit, here John the Baptist is saying that Jesus has infinite access to the Spirit's power through which he speaks the words of God, not just the words of another mere man. Jesus' words that we have recorded in the Bible cannot be compared or, or, or said alongside any other philosopher or any other politician or statesman. They're so far past that because he speaks from the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He speaks the very words of God. Now Christ, as I've said, rules over his entire church through the power and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. As the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is perfect in every way. His reality has deep relevance for the church at Sardis, as well as every other church that has ever been or will ever be. Now, let's see how he has relevance for the church at Sardis. If you still have your Bible open to Revelation 3, let's look at the last half of verse 1 again. Jesus says this to the church at Sardis, I know your works. We've seen that already, haven't we? We've seen that a couple of times in letters to other churches. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are 
dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, let's rewind our brains a little bit one more time. And let's go back to the second letter that was written to the churches. It was the letter to Smyrna. And what did Christ say to Smyrna? He said, I know your poverty. I know things are tough there, Smyrna. And then Jesus adds this little addendum to what he'd said. He said, but you are rich. I know your poverty. I know what things are, are like there for you, but you are rich. What, they appeared to many and to even to themselves to have been poor, but they had heavenly riches kept, as the Bible says in Matthew, where thieves couldn't break in and steal them, where rust and moth could not corrupt them. They were rich in heavenly wealth. Here in Sardis, by comparison, that was Smyrna. Here in Sardis, things looked great. This church was the talk of the town. Things were popping. Now, again, look back at the other churches we've looked at. Um, one of the churches, that they had persecution coming at them from the Jewish community. They had religious persecution. Another church had persecution coming at them from the pagan community. So the world was against them. They had the, the religious people and the world against different churches. But here in Sardis, is a to- whole different thing. They look great. They're the talk of the town. Things are popping. But here's what we got to see. Their enemy is themselves. They are their enemy. There's where the problem is coming in right from within their, their walls. In reality, things were not popping. They weren't the talk of the town. Things were much more dire than they could have ever imagined. Smyrna looked poor, but was wealthy with true riches. Sardis had a great reputation of life, but in fact was dead. Outside observers looking at this church, they saw the appearance of energy and vibrancy. And they said, man, that is the place to be. Even the people in the church would have testified, we're alive. There are many churches here in town, around the, the, the city, around the state, around the world, that appear to be alive. And if you were to interview people in those churches, they would, you'd interview the people, you'd interview the leadership, doesn't matter. They would assure you that life is happening there. And would it not be tragic, to say the least, a tragic thing to discover that what, that what we thought were signs of life among us were only a delusion, and if, they, and if the possibility of that is a reality, we have to ask ourselves, how do we know that a church, or more specifically, our church, is truly alive? We have to ask that question. It's not a comfortable question, but we have to ask that question. Now, I'm thankful that, you know, we're not a, a, a little fortress where we say all those other churches are bad. No, no, no. There's a lot of great churches here in the city that are preaching the gospel. But in every city uh, with, that has churches, which is every city, there are, there's wheat growing and there are weeds growing. And Jesus said it won't be till the last day when all that is separated out, right? And so we've got to acknowledge that. But, so how, but let's get back to our question. How do we know that a church is truly alive? So first thing I want to do is consider some things that are no indication that the church is alive. 
They're things that may not be bad things in and of themselves, but they don't necessarily indicate the presence of grace, the Holy Spirit's power, or that God is pleased. And, And these things may garner the praise of the community. They may really impress men and women, but they don't impress God in and of themselves. So first of all, it's no indication of life that worship is enthusiastic. No indication of life whatsoever. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's good when people's hearts are so engaged in worshiping God that a hand might raise or tears might flow, but by itself, it doesn't mean anything. It's our nature to be swept away by our emotions, especially in the midst of a really emotional atmosphere. Anybody ever been to a football game where the home team is winning? If you're a Tech fan, it seems like a long time since we've been to a football game where the home team was winning. But, but um, when you're in that environment, would you agree that there's a lot of enthusiasm? There's a lot of things, and it's easy to get swept into that. Now, football's not your thing. I probably should have picked another analogy, but we'll stick with football. There's a lot of shared enthusiasm. There's a lot of emotion. And many worship services are like that, that the the atmosphere is charged with an emotional energy because it's been crafted to be that way. We get hyped up by great music and by overly positive messages telling us how awesome we are in God's eyes and our emotions take over. But let me just try to tell you what the problem is with that. Some of you love worship services like that, but let me tell you what the problem is. I'm not picking on the worship service. The problem is that we who are followers of Christ should be motivated to worship by truth. Not by emotions, not by being stirred, not by being the atmosphere being electric. We should be stirred by truth, by knowing what God has revealed about himself and his holiness and his power and his majesty and his love, especially his love as it is seen in Christ Jesus. We cannot actually worship a God that we don't know. And we cannot know God apart from what he's told us about himself in the scriptures. What about large size and rapid growth and big budgets? Now listen, I'd love to have a larger size and rapid growth and big budgets. But in and of themselves, they're no evidence of life in the church. We're, we're in a troubling time in, in American Christianity. We live in the age of the gimmick. And, and what I mean by that is a, a church will advertise, hey, you got to come this Easter. You may never have been to church in five years, but you got to come this Easter because this Easter we're giving away a car. Or they'll make an appeal, just a spontaneous appeal for people to be baptized. And to persuade you to come down front to get baptized, they'll shoot a t-shirt cannon into the crowd. Now, if you get a t-shirt, man, you come down and get baptized so everyone can see you in your church t-shirt getting baptized. And you may think I'm exaggerating. Both of those things have actually happened on multiple occasions in actual churches claiming to be a community of worshipers. Often churches 
de-emphasize the preaching of the Word, the sacraments, and all corporate aspects of worship, and they replace those old, dusty, boring things with celebrity pastors, with dramas, with concerts, turning the gathering of the saints into a spectator sport. We're all up here performing so that y'all can watch it and hold your cigarette lighters up and go like this, you know, just really get into the show. That's the motivation of a lot of worship services these days. And it's tragic. Because we have worship. We, we corporately gather so that we can be together proclaiming things like we did with the Apostles' Creed. This is what we believe. And we believe it together. We don't let the celebrities on the stage believe it for us. We believe it together. And so the, the, the gathering of the saints that is so precious in the eyes of Christ becomes a spectator sport. And instead of a time of glorifying God through worship and learning about Him that is governed by His own holy word, we get something altogether different. And the crowds show up for this. It's a sign of life. Man, we had 12,000 people last Sunday. The crowds show up for this. For, and, 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 but what they're coming for is teaching that tickles their ears, not convicting their hearts. And they love to come and laugh at the preacher's clever jokes instead of wailing over their many sins. And they love to come and be coddled and entertained instead of instructed, corrected, encouraged, rebuked, and built up by the Bible. And Paul painted an entirely different picture for his pastoral protege, Timothy. These are the instructions he gave him in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He said, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to do these things. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. We've got such a pragmatic view of ministry that we say, hey, we gotta, we gotta give the people what they want. We gotta do it quick. No. Paul said, take your time. Do it with complete patience. Do it with teaching. Instruct them. Go through the long, painful process of teaching people how to follow Christ. And he said, it's, it's very important that you do this, Timothy, for verse three, for the time is coming. When people will not endure sound teaching, but they'll have itching ears and they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I know this was written for a very dire situation 2,000 years ago. And it is applied to the church every day since then. But man, do you see how it's applying now? Do you see it? Man, people are saying, saying I, I go to here because they have this great thing, this great program, all these things. And they're, they're basically, they're not saying, God, here I am. I am willing, shape me, send me, change me, whatever. They're saying, God, here's what I want. Here's my list. Give me something to suit my own passion. And in so doing, they're turning away from listening to the truth and they're wandering off into myths. But listen to me. Life is too short for me personally 
to suit the passions of people I love. The people that God has called me to for whose souls I will give an account. I do not have time to drop Easter eggs from helicopters to get people to buy into our brand. I don't care about that at all. Jared C. Wilson said this phrase that when I read it in his book, I've quoted it for five years now. What you win them with is what you win them to. If you win people with gimmicks, guess what you want? People that need more gimmicks. So we've got to ask ourselves to know if we're a living church or a dead church, do we want to win people to world-class entertainment and a free t-shirt or do we want to win them to the Lord of life who bids his followers to come to him and die forsaking everything that they might receive a kingdom and a resurrection? What do we want? What are we calling people to? All those other things are going to pass, folks. Jesus warns the church at Sardis to wake up. He uses that terminology. He says, hey, church, wake up. And that's really significant. It's amazing how Jesus, with all of these churches so far, he has put things from their culture into his letter that they would get. It's almost not an inside joke, but it's inside information that they would get. The reason that Jesus says to the church in Sardis, wake up, is because Sardis had a really embarrassing history. Very embarrassing. So Sardis was a city with high fortified walls surrounded by cliffs. It, it, when you, If you had been an ancient conquering king, you would have looked at Sardis and said, not worth the trouble. And yet, two times, not one time, two times in Sardis's history within just a couple hundred years of each other, the, the enemies, invaders crept into the city because the, the, the guards on their walls weren't watching. They were totally just out of it, asleep, because they thought their walls and their cliffs would protect them. And Sardis fell twice. All of their confidence was in what they thought was impregnable. And so my message to you, church, as it was Christ's message to the church at Sardis, is woe to those who fall asleep rather than watching. Woe to those who fall asleep. Remember when Jesus was uh, last night of his life before his crucifixion. And he, he goes, he's preparing to go to the cross, takes Peter, James, and John into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, he says, hey, let's pray together. I'm going to go over here. You guys stay here and let's pray together um, because this is about to get serious here. And so Jesus goes, he prays, he says, my soul is troubled unto death. He uh, sweats great drops of blood, all that drama and, and, and just, just uh, heavy story that we read in the gospel accounts. And he comes back and three times he finds his disciples sleeping. And Jesus says to him in Matthew 26, 41, Watch and pray, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Testimony time at Northridge Life Church. How many of you from personal experience have discovered that your spirit is often way more willing than your flesh has power to carry out? Anyway, okay, all right, we're pretty united in that. 
Much like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, the church in Sardis is told to wake up and strengthen what remains. What Jesus is saying is to shore up any strength that they still have that is rooted in the gospel. Perhaps in Sardis, perhaps, there were flickers of true faith remaining from the time when someone had come into that pagan city and shared the gospel and a church was formed. And maybe, just maybe, there was still some, something happened that, that caused a fire to burn when they first heard the message of Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, you must be diligent not to let the embers of that truth and that hope cool off. Do you remember what, again, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1? He said, For this reason, Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Now, I have heard this passage all my life, and it was always talking about some spiritual gift, some talent, some ability. The gift of God is the message of the gospel. You can see that in the context. He's talking about the, the faith that had existed in his mother and his grandmother. The gift of God is the, is the faith of the God that results from the gospel. He says to fan into flame the gift of God, which is on, in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit, of, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul reminded Timothy that his faith in Christ was a gift from God that often needed to be fanned back into its flaming glory as as it often dies down, assaulted by intimidation and apathy. But God also supplied power, love, and self-control to us by the Spirit so that we can thrive even in a hostile world. Aren't you glad of that? That God has given us enough where we can make it. We can, we can continue to stay consistent and faithful even in the worst of conditions. Because Jesus, in looking at Sardis, said in verse 2, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then... What you have received and heard, keep it and repent. Now, we don't know the specifics, but Sardis's signs of life that that gave them this reputation of, of all this life and vibrancy, their signs of life were false. The Lord had done an audit and he found their works to be undone. And he tells the church at Sardis, that there is only one way back for them, only one way of return for them. Now, five of the seven churches that we have looked at and will be looking at have the same command from Christ that, that Sardis gets here. And that command is to repent. And the Greek word here means to change your mind about the nature of sin to such a degree that you amend your ways by necessity. You are so convinced of the ugliness and the destructive nature of sin that you cannot uh, continue in it. What you once saw as beneficial and pleasant, you now regard as vile and harmful. Those in Sardis had heard the word correctly previously, but at one point that we don't have record of, they had drifted like a boat without an anchor. Jesus is calling them to remember what they once received and to keep it. And that, what I was trying to say earlier in the service, that is the nature of true repentance. It's not pledges and vows. It's remember, remembering what Christ had given you and returning to that. Revelation verse uh, 3, verse 3. If you will not wake up, 
I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus issues a stern warning. They can fool themselves and delight in their phony version of life, or they can repent and be restored to Christ's pleasure. The alternative to doing that is way too horrible. What does Christ say? He says that he will come like a thief. Now, this is a recurring theme in Scripture. We see Jesus constantly saying, I will come like a thief. And the idea is, as he pointed out in the Gospels, is that if you knew a thief was coming, you wouldn't tuck yourself and go to Betty by. You would be ready for the thief. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to come just like a thief does. You will not see it coming. And, and he's saying that they'll be so consumed by empty religion and hollow pleasures that they'll be oblivious to the great day of his coming. And Jesus won't just show up and surprise them and be like, oh, Jesus, you're here. I had no idea that was today. Come on in. You know, it's not, nothing like that. Jesus says in this passage that he will come, you know, without them knowing it and he will come against them. Did y'all catch that? He's saying, I'll come as your enemy when I do show up. In Matthew 25, you guys probably are familiar with the scripture. Jesus describes himself enthroned in glory on the last day with the nations of the world gathered in front of him and he separates them as a shepherd separates the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And what a terrible discovery for churches like Sardis for churches in our modern era, and hopefully not for our own church. To, that what a terrible discovery to find that you are a goat when all the time you thought you were a sheep. See, in Jesus' parable, the sheep hear this wonderful phrase, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you. But the goats on the left-hand side... By the way, I'm not calling you guys goats. You just happen to be on the left-hand side. The goats are told, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire that has been not prepared for you, but prepared for the devil and his angels. The great day that is coming, I assure you it's coming, will reveal the true believers and the false believers. It'll reveal the sheep and the goats. It'll reveal the eternally blessed and the eternally cursed. And may we at Northridge Life Church, and more importantly, the individual members of it, be a true church in every way when that day arrives. But Sardis isn't only a place of death and curses and people who are goats. Revelation 3 verse 4 says this, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed, clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels, and he, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the midst of those who haven't or rather who have abandoned the way, right in the middle of them, some haven't abandoned the way. What a, great, what a great hope there is there. Spiritually, Jesus says that they are unstained. 
They have kept their garments unsoiled. They, they are promised that they will stay that way forever, having relied on Christ's righteousness and not their own. They're promised that that will never be taken away from them. They will walk with Christ and are worthy. What a weird thing to have Jesus Christ, the risen Lamb, the Prince of all heaven, look at a group of people and say, you'll walk with me because you're worthy. Well, how did they get worthy in the first place? Because they walked with him. Because he knew them. Because he had chosen them before the foundation of the earth. And because they're in Christ, they're worthy like Christ. These unstained robes that they're now wearing, that that they've kept unsoiled, They represent consistent obedience and courageous faith. But the white garments that Christ promises as a reward is the raiment of one who's been victorious in battle, overcoming both a godless culture and a polluted church, and that they will win these garments as a sign of their conquering from Christ. And we know that this reward of righteousness is forever because of the next promise. Jesus says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. What a great promise. And he says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Those who have been truly saved, listen to me carefully, are in no danger of losing it. You cannot lose what you did not earn on your own. Salvation, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, is a free gift. It is not of yourselves so that none of you can boast. None of us can boast. Salvation is a free gift granted by a loving Father who predestines, who calls, who justifies and glorifies us. He has no regrets and he makes no mistakes in his calling. And he didn't leave us to the whims of our own wavering hearts. Uh, Somebody once said, and I think it's brilliant, that if you could lose your salvation, you would. But what about the people in Sardis whom Christ says, I will come against you? I mean, they're in the church. Weren't they saved at least at one point? Well, know this. God's judgment won't be for people who somehow missed out on his eternal promise. Oh man, we just didn't get the, the message and didn't, didn't uh, uh, hear this great news. But it, what God's judgment will do in the last day is it'll reveal who really belonged to him. And so Peter gives us this strong encouragement in Second Peter 1 verse 10. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. How are you looking at your, you didn't, you can't call yourself, you can't elect yourself, but you can certainly confirm that those things are real. Where is your heart? What are your pursuits? What is it, what is it that, that are you, are you actually growing in grace and changing? You can look at those things. What a comforting promise to know that we can never be blotted out of Jesus's book if we truly believe. How amazing to know that he will stand before his father and declare that all of our sins are forgiven by his blood and welcome us in. The joy of this promise and the terror of possibly being left out of it demand that we examine ourselves to know if we only have a reputation of being alive 
and yet are really rotting corpses of spiritual death. And there's still, this is the great part, there's still time to repent. Jesus calls us, just like he called these churches in Revelation, he calls us to repent. And remember that that means to change your mind about sin, stop making excuses for it, renounce it for your eternal benefit and for the glory of God. Why wait? Today's a great day. Today, there has never been a better day to repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ. For those of you that have never done it, today is a great day to put your trust in Jesus Christ. For those of you whose love has grown cold and there's more death in you than life, today is a great day to to reconfirm your calling and election and say, nope, I have been distracted by all these. I confess that, but I am going for Jesus. I am going after Jesus. Today is a great day to do that. I love the words of the old hymn. Jesus paid it all. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Would you stand with me? Ah. anybody here ready to do that? Can you just come to the Lord? I know we had a time of corporate confession, so we're not going to go through uh, the, the, um, uh, you know, the same process. But maybe some of you didn't, didn't imagine when we did that earlier in the service what the stakes were. So I just want to invite you, if, if, if you say, hey, look, I, I do all the churchy stuff, I do all the Christian stuff, but I got to be honest. There's not a lot of life in me. There's not a lot of true life. I, I, I wear the name. I got a few bumper stickers on my car, a few t-shirts in my closet. But man, I am not following Christ and dying daily for his glory. Can you just, don't be afraid to admit that. Just admit it. No one's going to judge you. Because listen, we've all been there. Every one of us has been there. But there's nothing greater. There's nothing sweeter than following Jesus Christ and giving him your entire life, surrendering it, hold nothing back. So can I just invite you to do that this morning? And if you're here and, and you're a believer, like I said earlier, and you're struggling, just keep falling on the grace of Jesus. Now remember, grace is not a license to sin. Grace, according to the book of Titus, I said this a few weeks ago, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and live self-controlled lives in this present world. And so um, keep falling on the grace of Jesus. He will change you if you are truly one of his. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that when you look on Northridge Life in general, and when you look on her members specifically, Lord, that you would find a people who truly are alive and who are living for you and for your glory and living for the sanctification of the Spirit, living in hope of a re- eternal reward and a, and a bodily resurrection. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us and your faithfulness, faithfulness to us. And we pray that, that throughout this week and even today, your Spirit would call us to lean heavily into the grace of Jesus Christ. 
Thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, we're going to invite you to come to the table of the Lord and receive the elements. Of, uh, if we have servers this morning, if you'd come and help us. All right, see them coming. Um, we, I'm going to ask you to come and just receive the elements and then go back to your uh, seat, and we will, we will share these together. So you can come now. Just, just come as you're ready. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your body that was broken for us, Lord, so that uh, God is a symbol of our brokenness and so that we could be whole, Lord, that, that uh, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. Let's take the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blood of the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world and that has taken away our sins as we've trusted in you. And we pray that we would remind, uh, we would be reminded uh, by your Spirit of how uh, our gra- grace is our life and that we rely on your grace daily, Lord. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's take the cup. Thank you, Jesus. All right, if you would just place your hands in a receiving position. I want to read a benediction over you from the book we're studying in Revelation. This is from chapter 1, verse 5. To him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.